We're speaking today with Lee Tai Wong, President of Computer Mail Services, and we're talking with Lee Ta today about email and spam. So, Lee Ta, I know that you offer a product which offers email filtering. How do email filtering solutions differ? Good morning, Michael. Um, email filtering uh, solutions come in many different shapes. Um, uh, most notably, there are companies that offer outsourced services that will provide you with the filtering so that what arrives on your email servers are after the filtering has taken place. There are other companies that offer appliances where you would actually put this box into your server rack and the messages flow to it and it does the filtering and then your server gets the filtered results. There are other products also that are software-based so that you can use your own hardware, install the software. Um, typically, for businesses, you have a choice of installing it on the messaging server itself or on a separate box, which typically is a better solution because it isolates your email servers from the direct access from the Internet. Um, but uh, in those cases, you have the software installed just like, you know, uh, other software products that you install on your own machines and you maintain them that way. Now, those are the three types, uh, generally speaking, that you find different email filtering solutions available today. And, and what are the differences between each, advantages and disadvantages? And maybe if you could, uh, you know, relate them to ones that we're all familiar with, Norton, um, so on and so on. Well, the, um, uh, when you have the outsourced services, um, it is simpler in the sense that uh, your company um, doesn't see all of the junk messages. So you get the net results and there's less of the traffic than you would normally see. Um, those products come from various companies, including most, uh, probably the most famous one is the one that Google purchased. There's a company called Postini. And so now uh, Google offers that as a, uh, as a service from themselves. Microsoft has a competing service uh, because they purchased a company called Forefront Technologies, and so they now offer similar services as well. Um, and basically the way you arrange that is um, your uh, domain uh, registration for the, um, will have these records pointing to those services. And so all the mail servers would tend to want to send mail directly to those services. And your email server just gets the net filtered results. Um, on the appliance side, um, the most, uh, probably the most notable name is uh, the product from uh, Barracuda Networks. And uh, there you get a box uh, and you, um, you know, install it on your premises. And then um, my company offers software solutions, so you have the benefit of having uh, the software managed by your own staff. Um, and uh, that product has been around for several years. It's called Prater. Um, among the, uh, these various solutions, uh, they basically offer similar uh, results in terms of filtering uh, efficiencies and success rates and so forth. Some companies tend to be a little bit more sensitive to the notion of uh, using outsourced services because they really don't have the messages coming directly to their services, servers and uh, until after it's been filtered. 
uh, the issue of privacy and security comes in, in spite of what uh, Google and Microsoft and others might guarantee, you really don't have control of your messages. Um, if uh, things like uh, message retention policies are important, you don't know how long their own policies might be and whether they'll conform to your own mandated policies as far as retaining certain messages. No, admittedly, these are junk messages, but keep in mind that not, none of these filters are going to be 100% accurate. You know, that absolute goal is always trying, to, uh, we're always trying to attain that, but, um, but they're not going to be completely, uh, absolutely 100% accurate which means that there are some messages, the so-called false positives, that will get tracked by the filter. So you need to go and, you know, retrieve them. And as a result, uh, you know, you might have sensitive information that uh, might be on other servers that are not your own, under not, not under your control. So those types of things have to come into play when you're trying to decide uh, whether you want to go choose an outsourced service company or uh, a dedicated client or um, software-based solution. The, the other issues of um, the other issues that come into play um, generally is pricing. The service uh, uh, offerings from Postini and so forth tend to be much more expensive, uh, and primarily because. Uh, on a per-user basis, primarily because uh, the administration that you or your staff happens to have to uh, expend an effort uh, is offloaded. It's not your hardware in the first place that does the filtering. So you know they you know they they take all that and they offer you a bundle pricing on a, typically on a per-user basis, uh, per-user per year basis, uh, and they tend to be more expensive than if you had the hardware, at either an appliance or a software that you install on your premises. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. Interesting. Well, in, in thinking about email and so on, people can whitelist and blacklist things as well. So what's the difference between filtering and blacklisting? Uh, actually, um, uh, filtering is a more uh, broader uh, coverage of terminology, and uh, there are many techniques used in filtering messages. Blacklisting happens to be one of them. Um, blacklisting actually uh, can be divided into two methods. One is based on uh, a property of the mail server itself, uh, namely the IP address. You can blacklist based on that. And most famous of this technique is to use what's known as a, a DNS uh, server-based uh, blacklisting, where there are servers out there on the Internet which allow free access to query whether or not an IP address has been seen and therefore known to be spam, uh, sending spam. Uh, and if it happens to be in a database, then the query response would be, yes, it's found, and typically what your mail server will do is, is throw away that message. So that's a DNS blacklisting based on IP. But others are based on the sending addresses. But sending addresses, uh, email addresses, are not that reliable because typically when you have spam, those sender addresses are forged anyway because the spammer has full control over, uh, over the composition of the message headers and so forth. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the broad uh, term filtering uh, under the filtering umbrella, blacklisting is just one of the many techniques that can be used to do that kind of filtering. Mm -hmm. Okay. And taking a look at your website, CNS Connect, uh, I know that uh, it's possible to filter by language. 
but you say that that doesn't work. Why doesn't filtering by language work? Um, the uh, the um, information on our CMSConnect.com website does talk about different techniques in filtering. As far as language is concerned, we're based in the United States, and a lot of the spam uh, comes from other sources than the United States. And, you know, when these spammers are trying to offer their products or services, they're going to use the language that their target uses. So obviously these, you know, you might get messages from China or Korea. They're going to be in English because why? Well, let's face it, the United States has the most money. You know, we, uh, we spend a lot for these types of things and they want to sell it to It doesn't make sense for some uh, spammer to send a message from Korea in Korean to offer a service to, to a U.S.-based potential prospect, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's why using language itself, which is typically found in the message headers to indicate what kind of character sets are being used in that message, they're going to be, if you're going to, if the spam is in the United States, the target language it's going to be is the native one, English. So that's why it's not very useful to do that. Okay. Now, and I know that one of your solutions, XD Filter, spans by country of origin. Yeah, filters by country of origin. Filters by country of origin. So for whom is this appropriate? If you're a global firm with operations and activities in a lot of different countries throughout the world, does it make sense to filter by country? Well, it turns out that um, um, global companies actually do perform uh, filtering in one sense or another. Um, for example, um, you have uh, global companies that, that have their websites scattered throughout the world, not just, you know, and they may be a U.S. company headquartered here in the United States, but they'll have websites that are regionally specific either for the purpose of having language that is tuned to particular markets. And so um, when you go and visit uh, a website, they know from where you are uh, making that query on your browser, and they will then redirect the, uh, the request to the appropriate server so that if you were in Japan visiting, say, a GM, they'll know that it's coming, you know, this request is coming from Japan, and they'll redirect you to a web server that handles the specific grim country, and then you can select uh, from the languages of choice. So there are certain types of filtering, but not to, uh, not for the purpose of uh, eliminating uh, email. Typically, this is for uh, appropriately redirecting the request to the to the area that handles that region of the world. As far as as far as email is concerned, um, if you are a global uh, company um, operating all over. Um, you probably would also want to do a similar kind of redirection of these messages so that if you were in Korea wanting to send a general message for information to GM, you, you probably don't want to get it coming a response from GM in the United States because that's going to be in English. You want to get a response from South Korea's uh, GM subsidiary in Korean. Right? So for that reason, you'd want to have a similar kind of thing uh, to do the redirection of, uh, of the email request just like mm-hmm. website business, too. Um, in terms of eliminating spam, um, that uh, makes it a much more interesting question. Um, in general, uh, larger companies wouldn't want to do this kind of filtering based on the IP simply because they don't know uh, where um, the, the questions of the, the, um, the email uh, are originating and whether or not it's legitimate. But there is a solution. Typically, um, uh, these companies would have on their website a means to do the communication. Uh, for what I mean by that is the request for information, it, 
If you were trying to send an email message to a large conglomerate that operates globally, what address would you use to begin with? You wouldn't know. So the, the typical method in which they communi people communicate, you know, uh, without having had a uh, an interchange or a discussion previously, is to go to the website and then use the facilities on the website to do that. Now, once you've established a conversation with someone specific, then you can continue to do so by email directly. Um, so in that regard, um, this type of IT-based, country-sensitive filtering really wouldn't come into play anyway because these types of messages are originating from your web server. So it doesn't get hit by that kind of filter. Uh, so that, that's uh, typically what you find. You have companies who are operating these websites for communications with the public at large as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, with smaller firms, if they aren't global yet, but are pursuing global market, does it make sense for them to filter by country as well? Most of the smaller firms uh, find that uh, when they are entering particular countries' uh, markets, it's very specific. They have schedules, uh, you know, some some goals as to when they're going to enter a particular market. So they're not going to try to handle all the 240-plus countries in the world at the same time. I mean, they're small after all. Even GM doesn't try to do that. They don't have a, you know, they don't have a, a means to try to handle every single market, every single country. But they, it's not to just regionalize these operations, yeah, especially uh, that's true with smaller companies. So, yes, the answer is it makes much more sense in, the, in that case because then they would basically look for filtering from, you know, uh, everywhere else but the, those areas in which they're interested. And they will cut down a significant amount of their traffic to do so. Now, a lot of the illegitimate spam that comes today, uh, although the United States accounts for probably uh, the single, single largest source of spam in the country at around 20% today, it's actually getting smaller. There are other countries that are you know, getting up there. Uh, you know, Korea, China, Brazil, Portugal, they're already in the double digits uh, as far as accounting for global spam. And the primary reason for that is because a lot of the spammers have moved their operations outside the United States. Uh, we have a law here that prevents them from operating their servers in the United States. So uh, the reason the United States is still spewing out so much today is probably because of the fact that many of the uh, home-based PCs that are always connected to the Internet have actually been compromised. There are millions of these uh, PCs that are part of, uh, that serve as, uh, as part of these uh, so-called bot networks. And uh, that's where the spammers leverage their, uh, their muscle by having these armies of uh, infected, compromised machines to screw off their trunk from the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, now, um, if the U.S. is still the, the single biggest spam originator, does it make sense to even try and filter out spam from the United States? Um, actually, I do have uh, customers uh, using uh, ExiFilter uh, outside the United States, and they, do, and they do indeed put the U.S. as one of the countries that they ban. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, ExiFilter uh, allows them to put in exceptions which mm -hmm. are very easy to do, either based on IP address or assumed to be we have a version coming out, which will actually allow for um, uh, whitelisting of uh, email addresses and domains as well. Mm -hmm. So you can whitelist these. Uh, we have customers who do this primarily because of the simple fact that the U.S. accounts for about 20% of the global spam. Mm -hmm. um, they're in the U.K. or in Spain or some other countries in Europe, and they do have the USA listed there. Mm -hmm. So it is being done. 
passion. Now, it also looks like some of the fastest growing economies in the world are also the countries with the growing numbers of spammers. How can you separate the wheat from the chaff? In other words, opportunities from fast growing economies versus the risk of getting spam from these countries? Well, first of all, um, those countries that are fastest growing, uh, their, uh, their laws haven't kept up with the technology. For the most part, the U.S. laws haven't either, but especially so there. Um, and as a result, they, uh, they do have a lot of uh, spamming activity from those countries. Um, a lot of the commercial spammers have moved to these favorable uh, locations, and their servers are there. But um, uh, in answer to your question, there are actually two techniques that can, uh, that can provide solutions to this. The first is, is what I had said earlier, is that your website would have the means to do the contact and sending an email, and therefore only legitimate, uh, only people who are interested in communicating with you in the first place would use your own website and their email slot to request product information or get more more information about a particular thing, you know, whatever question that they might have. And in those cases, the email originates from your web server, which presumably would be allowed to send messages to you. Um, the other thing is that you use the facilities of the whitelist. Uh, so if you have a if you have trading partners in China, you don't have to allow all of China, you blacklist all of China, but you whitelist those trading partners that you have. And for those who are, um, and, and this, these two coupled together would eliminate a great deal of that kind of worrisome, oh, am I missing something you know, legitimate? Because, well, no, if they go to your website. If they didn't go to the your website, what address would they send to anyway? They wouldn't have a clue what email address to send to your company. So if you couple these two techniques, then you're fine in, in using, uh, you know, IT-based country sensitive filtering to put down on the standard level. Okay. Um, now, so in other words, it sounds like you move countries on and off a banned country list. How difficult is it to do that? Um, XCFilter's uh, manager makes it very simple because mm -hmm. we list all the countries that you've selected to allow as well as what you've selected to ban. Uh, when you first uh, use this product, um, all countries are allowed. And so if uh, you were in the United States or you just have a handful of countries that you want to allow, then what you do is you select all of those allowed countries and ban them, and then you just select those exceptions that you wanted to allow and unban them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very simple process that takes just a few seconds of the time because all the countries are actually listed. You just go down the alphabetically sorted list, select those that are banned, and move them back into the allowed column, or vice versa. You go down the allowed list, and you can select that particular country and ban that one country. So it's a very simple process. So it's just a matter of checking a box in the administrator. You actually move it in from one list to another. There are two lists that appear on the visual on the screen, and you just highlight one and you say, press the button that says move to the ban list, or go to the one on the ban list and highlight that and say, press the button and move to the allowed list. It's that simple. Okay. Now, you also mentioned that a reason spammers in the U.S. are moving elsewhere is because of our Can Spam Act. Do you know of or do you have any predictions for when other countries might be implementing an equivalent of a can spam act. There, there are actually a number of countries that are moving towards that. Uh, Australia is the first one that comes to mind. I think they're going to have one that's even much more teeth into it than can spam. Uh, to a large extent, the can spam has 
worked only mildly in the United States. Um, the, where it worked is that it codified what was considered spam. And, and so if there were instances of someone uh, that sent messages that didn't conform to these requirements, then that would be viewed as spam and they could then be taken uh, to court. And in fact, there have been issues, there have been several high-profile instances in which people, standards, got jail time and fines in the United States, which is all good, because uh, that shows that there is some teeth to it and that uh, the law enforcement side is actually doing its job too, now that it has laws on the book. So to that extent, it's, it's, it's great. Unfortunately, it also means that there are, people now know what is against the law and what's not. So there are a lot of ways to skirt around the law, you know, and so it really hasn't addressed that side of the. The problem, the problem with them is that there's still an economic benefit to these people that send out. You know, they can send out millions and millions of messages, but so long as you, if there's just one, a small fraction that actually do something and actually, you know, buy the products or services, and will continue forever, that <laughs> I can see. Mm -hmm. And it's a constant battle a war between the spammers and those who try to counter it. And uh, legal enforcement is just one part of the solution. The laws obviously have to be on the books. And so there are countries that are putting these. I know in Europe there's also quite a bit of uh, effort to get laws on the books as well. A lot of the uh, developing countries, they have other issues that don't give them time to consider this. And so it's not that they don't want to, it's just that they don't have the resources at that time to, you know, to dedicate uh, to trying to get this uh, type of issue codified in their laws. I probably would say that you'll start seeing uh, many of the more um, advanced countries have laws on the books in the next uh, five to ten years, and uh, maybe the third world might see something later, you know, uh, much later than that, maybe within the next 20 years. So, so the, the, the laws being on the books is not, is not going to be very helpful for the immediate future. Um, even what, we, what laws we have in the United States, as far as stamp stamp, isn't, isn't a complete solution either. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, we have the problem of these uh, compromised machines. Well, they're compromised because the people who own them aren't really security conscious. And so they don't know that their machines are infected. You know. And all they can see is that, gee, my PC is really acting slowly. Do you mean at a corporate level or no, on a personal level? Okay. Most of the boss, uh, the PCs that are compromised and are part of the army of bots are personal computers connected at home, you know, on a dedicated internet connection full time, and they don't turn the PCs off. <laughs> so. Um, they get infected, and you know, and these days it's very easy to get infected. You can go and visit an infected web page, and all of a sudden your machine gets compromised. Mm -hmm. So you have to take protective measures that will prevent that from happening. Mm -hmm. And of course, the ISPs they they can't do very they don't they don't do much at all mm -hmm. because it's so hard for them. They you know any particular ISP might have tens of thousands of people. Well, what, what can they do? Send a technician to go and clean these machines at each and every one of those things? What the ICs can do that I started seeing happen is if they can detect when there's a surge of email being sent from a particular machine. 
and they can clamp it down. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I have heard of Verizon in particular uh, being able to detect this, and then they, uh, um, if you use a browser of that infected machine, and your Verizon will actually block you, and it will put up a page on your screen that will show you that your machine's been compromised. You need to fix this, otherwise you're not, your Internet connectivity is not going to go through. Well, good yeah. for them. Good for them. Mm-hmm. We'll see, you know, how, you know, the, the clamor of customers yelling at them might change their tune. And, uh, but that's what I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that, uh, that the ISPs will get uh, more involved and try to stamp out this problem. I mean, it sounds a little bit like it's echoes of, I think, Comcast, who was cutting off customers for excessive use of bandwidth, right? But that's, a, that's, that's a different, you know, that's a different matter because that was for the uh, the peer-to-peer uh, sharing uh, of music and video and so forth that they would do that, and they didn't have any they didn't have any policies about that. Whereas when you're talking about um, um, machines that are infected sending off spam, there's actually uh, an attempted use policy. Uh, you know, you're as a as a as a home-based uh, user. Uh, the policies are you don't have any servers, you don't operate any servers, and that's what these uh, you know, bot-infected machines are. They're, they're mm-hmm. spam servers. Mm-hmm. I mean, spewing up hundreds of thousands of messages. Sure. You know. Okay, well, now, and taking a look at your website, I also saw that you have customers all throughout the world. And I was just wondering, how do you support these customers outside the United States? I recognize Computer Mail Services is a small company, just wondering how you leverage your resources to support your customers throughout all the rest of the world. Well, we have um, we have uh, uh, several customers that are in Europe that can still reach us with an odd business time frame um, and, and therefore get access to support services. In other words, you're opening business hours. Correct. That's right. And so um, uh, they, they will reach us. Uh, typically what happens is we have, you know, we deal with uh, email filtering and in an emergency, it is possible to shut off the filtering um, so that we can have a chance to respond back and then and the customers know how to do the temporary filtering in case we, it's not during our open business hours. So we are able to handle customers in that regard too. And, and we, um, you know, although it's, it's, it's business critical, uh, when it comes time to not getting email because of the filtering acting up or something like that, um, or, or getting email and put too much of it because all the spam comes through, uh, you know, measures are in place so that they can still get business communication. Fortunately, um, XC Filter is one of those rare products where it's, you set it and you forget about it. There's, you know, there's very little administration to, other than selecting the, uh, the, the countries that you want to ban. So, what emergency you could have? Well, you just, uh, you finally discover that one of your salesmen uh, is, is dealing with a customer in a country that you've banned. So you can just go in, you can the manager, a key company manager, and just allow that particular country temporarily, you know. And then we have we, we have means by which we can suggest that you can whitelist the IP address or yeah, the domain name or the or the email address. Mm-hmm. So that it's it's not it's not very hard to resolve those types of problems. And, and we're very proud of that fact that XE filter is very painless for our customers. Gotcha. Well, okay. Um, I guess to wrap it up, is there anything that we missed or anything else that's important about email filtering, blacklisting, uh, the future of email spam, those kinds of things, from your viewpoint? We have been noticing 
some very interesting situations come up recently, uh, within the past three months. Um, what we have been seeing is that companies, both large and small, have been under what we consider a denial of service attack in the form of spam. Too much of it. Um, and it's not, it's not spam uh, that, that you're normally accustomed to. Uh, it's spam that occurs because it's really uh, a flood of what we call a non-deliverable report messages. And here, let, me, let me elaborate what's happening. Um, uh, our customer who comes to us crying for help when they're under this mode reports to us simply that they have suddenly seen a deluge in, tra in email traffic to the point where their email, their email server's delivery time of messages have gone way, way too long, hours before they actually see messages getting delivered properly. In one particular case of a customer, um, they are a small site, but they had an unusually high traffic volume approaching almost 2 million messages in a 24-hour period. And 1.9 million of the messages are these non-delivery reports. And here's how it happened. That particular, let's call them customer B, because they're not the primary instigator. They're, they're just a victim of something that happened else earlier in the chain. Okay, customer A, there are actually several of these customer A's, and their email servers are getting messages that are sent to fictitious email addresses in your domain. Okay. These messages uh, have as the return address or the sender address some fictitious address in company B's domain. Mm -hmm. So what happens? Well, company uh, A, let's call A1 to A100, their email servers don't have those fictitious email addresses. So what they do is they simply send back the original message with a non-delivery report saying abc123 at mydomain.com doesn't exist. Here's the message. And where does it go? Well, it goes to domain of company B. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden company B is getting this flood of non-delivery reports, all fictitious addresses to the tune of 1.9 million messages in a 24-hour period in this specific case. Mm -hmm. How do you filter that? They're coming, they're not coming from a particular IP, they're coming from several, you know, probably thousands of IP addresses. All of these thousands of company A's, the mail servers, are sending non-delivery reports. That's what we have been seeing to the point where this kind of garbage gets to company B's mail servers and they, that mail server has to try to figure out what to do with this and typically they, they're figuring out that oh we don't have this, you know these funky uh, email addresses in, my, in domain B either and probably, those email servers still have to process those messages to decide okay we're going to put it into the, into the administrator's queue to deal with it or whatever mailbox you know the dead letter mailbox they still have to deal with those messages to the point where the legitimate messages are getting delivery times that take hours instead of seconds. So in other words, it sounds like the net effect is, is a denial of service attack just like it was on a web server. That's correct. But it's just having an email server. That's correct. It happens on an email level, not web server. 
Wow. Yeah. Is, is there any geography attached to this? In other words, are they coming from, say, countries that are usually on people's banned country lists, or coming from anywhere? The, the fact that the fact that the, uh, they have actually filters uh, indicates or implies that they were all coming from compromised company A servers that are in the United States. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and and. We actually have our freighter product filtering, capable of filtering this type of attack. We call this attack the reverse NDR attack. And freighter handles that very nicely. But it's obvious that these companies um, don't have solutions in place that will protect them from this reverse NDR attack, where basically these are messages with uh, spam messages that are destined to fictitious email addresses in their domain, and as a result, their own mail server takes the time to go and deliver these non-delivery reports back to whomever it thought was the sender. And of course, if the sender says it's uh, some other fictitious address at company B's domain, and not company B, who's our customer, they get flooded with it. It sounds like a difficult problem to solve. It, it is a difficult problem to solve. Unfortunately, we do have a solution to that. And, and actually, filter will, will take care of it very handily. Uh, the biggest problem is that these are NDRs. Mm -hmm. So as a result, if you use actually filter to block NDRs, mm -hmm. it will also block legitimate as well as you know the illegitimate ones. Uh, so what you have to do is you have to tell your users, when you type in an email address by hand for that first time, make sure the email address is correct. <laughs> don't, you know, don't that finger the address because there are no, you know, if they implement the solution with NDR, with um, filtering out these NDRs and actually filter, no legitimate NDRs will get through. So you just have to teach your user population not to make a mistake when they type in their email address for the first time. And really, that's all it matters. That's all it counts. It's just that first time. Most people tend not to want to type an email address unless, of course, it's something they got on a business card. Once they've already established a communication and conversation with uh, with the correspondent, then they already have the email address. Most people just hit the reply button. Sure. Or they have address button. Well, I mean, I even scan my business cards these days. So, there you go. You know, right. So, so yeah. less, less of a mistake. Uh, that, uh, Although I still have to proof them because my <laughs> business card scanner isn't foolproof either. Right. Um, okay, so is there anything else uh, about CMS or this, this particular problem is coming more up more frequently. So, you know, I suspect that uh, businesses large and small are going to start seeing this happen because the spammers, are, like I said before, the spammers have an economic incentive. It doesn't cost them anything. And many times they're not, their own servers aren't the ones sending out the, the, the spam. It's these, you know, infected machines and the bot armies. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't cost them very much to do this. And, and they have an economic benefit with the very first one of someone's buying a farm. So it'll continue to happen. And I'm afraid that this kind of issue with this uh, denial of service spam attack is going to start happen, happening much, much more frequently. Well, now, people have hypothesized that because there are no limits on the amount of email you can send, people have, have proposed imposing a penny per class per email message. Would you advocate something like that? The, the, I would I would like to see some form of uh, of counting these things, but the uh, whole issue of micropayments and who's going what authority is going to manage it, you know, these the micro stamps, if you will, it's just another headache that's going to come up, and uh, and then there'll be other issues too, like you know, there's an account, and well, there's money there in that account. Well, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have uh, a deep theft 
trying to raid those as well. So it's, it's just another whole can of worms. I think that the best way is being proactive. You know, you have to be vigilant to protect your own company. Uh, and if you're the gatekeeper and you're standing vigilant and you can minimize the effect of all of this junk, uh, in the, whether it be in the form of attacks, uh, you know, spam or attacks on the web server, you just have to have people in your company standing vigilant. And the other thing is you have to educate your users. Don't click on every on any link that you see. Today, it's very possible that as soon as it launches the browser, that web page has something that takes advantage of vulnerability in the browser and will infect your machine. You know. Who in their mind would react to a greeting card from people who are, you know, you don't even know? If I get a, a Hallmark greeting card from even my relative, I won't click on it. You know, I, you know they, can send, they can call me. <laughs> I could have had dates with a lot of Russian women up to this point if I really wanted to. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there are also Korean women and Brazilian uh, as well, too. They're virtual. <laughs> they might be second life, but... Exactly. So you just have to stand this one. That, that's really it. That's really it. And educate your user population. You know, if you do those things, you've done a lot to minimize this kind of potential problem in your company. Great. Well, thank you very much, Lisa Long. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Thank you.